When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, guys. Thanks for joining. I had other things that I wanted to talk about, but this topic just kept coming up over and over and over again for the past two weeks. So if you've been following any kind of financial news, you've probably heard this a million times by now. The yield curve. The yield curve. The yield curve over and over and over again. So I thought I'd do a video on this and give you my take on it, my perspective on it. But I wanted to, rather than just focus on just the yield curve, I wanted to focus on recessions and broaden the scope of it instead of just focusing on one indicator of the of a recession that is a yield curve i wanted to take into context the yield curve compared to our other known indicators of a future uh a close future recession so first this is going to be a more in-depth video uh Normally, I do a portfolio update. Really, not too much has happened this week so far. So I plan on doing more of a, a big like roundup portfolio update at the end of this week. You can look at it right now. And, and for the week, I'm up 380 bucks. Most of it's market gains. Uh, for the month, thir last 30-day period, I've gained $85 and so on. But not much else has happened. So I'm going to leave the portfolio update for later this week. And I'm going to jump in right to the topic, which is going to be focusing on the yield curve and the other indicators of a recession, which I'll tell you what those are. So first, what is a recession? Are we close to a recession? How do we prepare for a recession? And what are the biggest risks that a re uh, recession pose? Um, so let's go through those. The first thing is, what is a recession? So if I'm going to be talking about this, I want you to know, be on the same page of what I'm t even talking about. I would define a recession as a long period of economic decline, meaning the economy has declined for more than just a few months. Uh, we look at indicators of a growing economy, like an increase in GDP, strong jo uh, job growth and job gain, money being put into the stock market, and pretty much a recession is the exact opposite of that. And usually it's the opposite of that, except it happens a lot quicker. So when the economy is growing and we're in a, we're in a uh, uh, bull market, that happens over a long period of time. A recession is like the same thing, but all in a very short spurt. Instead of going up 50% over three or four years, you're, you're, uh, the stock market can drop 50% in three or four months. So that's what a recession is, is every indicator that shows a growing economy, it's the total opposite of. Now, with that, recessions are kind of scary, and they are especially scary for people in industries that usually get hurt by them. Um, they hit different industries each time they happen, so they're scary because in recessions, it doesn't just mean the stock market goes down. It would be great if stocks just went down and it didn't affect the economy any other way, but with recessions, it affects jobs. So it's great if you get cheaper prices on good companies that are still are still doing well, but recessions usually mean the whole economy is not doing well. So the reason the stock market goes down is because companies are hurting, they're struggling, they're laying off people. And that means that a lot of people lose their job. So they're scary in that way. 
Uh, there's some jobs that are better in recessions than others, like government and healthcare jobs are a lot more immune to recessions than a lot of a lot of them that most of us are in. Most of the jobs that people do are not immune to recessions. So recessions are less scary if you're prepared for them financially and you're prepared for them mentally. And that's what I want to talk about as well. Uh, so let's go through the different indicators. And I have marked down what I think are the biggest indicators of recession. And one of them is the average length of a bull market. Another one is a yield curve. And another one that is, I think, worth mentioning is jobs and unemployment rate. So those are pretty huge indicators of the economy, of investor sentiment, and of whether we're going into a session. So let's start with the first one, the average length of a bull market. So the average length of a bull market, I'm going to go ahead and show you a image here. Now, this is the history of the U.S. Uh, bear and bull market since 1926. It only goes up to 2018. And there is kind of a special caveat from where this stops to where we are right now, because we're a little bit more recent than where this graph stopped. But as you can see, we have, we have in here that you can tell that bull markets last a long time. Lo uh, they last a lot longer than bear markets. So when we go into a bear market, which is a drop of like over 20% of the high, that's when you've entered uh, bear market territory. Now you can see right here, the orange part of this graph is a bear market. And then the highlighted kind of tan part means that that is a, a, a time of a recession. So they don't always line up perfectly, but they're, they're pretty spot on. So you can have recessions without having a full-blown bear market, but mostly when you do have a recession, you, it mostly has a, a bear market as well. So stocks do follow the economy pretty closely. And uh, what you can see, though, is it looks like you have nothing to worry about from this graph, really. It, like the, the chart going down doesn't seem like all that much. But if you actually look at the percentages here, a lot of them are pretty drastic. I mean, in, in 1980, it was negative 42%. 1990, it's 29%. In 2000, it's 24%. And then in 2009, dropped over 50%. The S&P 500 did. So that is an incredible amount. If you drop your portfolio value 50%, that means that you have to gain 100% to just get it back to where it was. So that's an incredible loss right there. Now, the most concerning part of this graph for me is just looking at the pattern of it, right? If we look at the pattern of the beginning and the average length of a bull market, I mean, you just look at it at a glance. And does that not look like we're somewhat in the arena of getting close to being due for one. I mean, look at this. We have, you know, a little two-inch space here, and then we have a recession, and two-inch space here, we have a, a bear market, rather. And it goes on and on and on, and you can see the average. We're on track. We're on pace to have another one. So this is an indicator that I actually think is is worthwhile, is that you just look at the average, that the the economy, on average, has a bear market every like five years and we're we're on year nine of having a bull market so we are overdue for one now there's a little bit of a caveat here because we did have a pretty drastic pullback and this is where it comes in whether we argue over this of whether this counts or not so let me show you this pullback here so if you look at from 2018 and this is where the graph leaves out from the end of 2018 to the end of February 2019, we had a 19.5% downturn. 
Now that is right on the brink of a bear market. Uh, they say a bear market's 20%, but 19.5, I mean, that is right in the arena. So does that count? Does that count as a bear market? Did we start over after that? I don't know. That's kind of a judgment call there. Some people might say, well, we did enter a bear market, so we're starting a new bull market. And you can say that, but does it really feel like we entered a full bear market there? To me, it doesn't really feel that way. It was a 19% drop, but it was so quick and it recovered so quickly that it doesn't really feel like we totally reset there, that we recalibrated the prices of companies there. Now, knowing the averages and knowing that we have a recession every five or so years and looking at this graph and seeing the pattern of it, what do we do? How, what, what are we supposed to do on this point? I have looked around and I actually thought about that a lot when I even started building up my portfolio. Because obviously, I've put a lot of money in the market just in the past year and a half. I put $30,000 into it just in the past year and a half. I am investing, but I'm following the advice that Howard Marks has. Howard Marks is a, a billionaire investor that runs Oak Tree Capital. And he's someone that I've mentioned a few times on the show. So if you've listened to my previous episodes, you're probably a little bit familiar with him. But I, he has a clip on this from about six months ago. And I think it's pretty good. I agree with him for the most part on his words of caution here. So let's take a listen to that. The economy has gone upward for almost 10 years. The markets have gone upward for almost 10 years. The too much money phenomenon is certainly underway. It would be a mistake to have as much risk in your portfolio today as you did two years ago, five years ago, or 10 years ago. You have to acknowledge that. I use the term calibrate. Today is not the time for max risk, full risk, or for, in my opinion, evenly balancing offense and defense. Your, po- your portfolio should be skewed toward less risk. Yes, but not extremely. And you can see I mostly agree with what he's saying. It makes perfect common sense to me. You look at the market and it's gone up so much for the past nine years that it just makes common sense to me that it's more likely to drop now than it was five years ago or six years ago or eight years ago. And I agree totally with him. I think that it is a mistake to have as much risk in your portfolio now as you did five years ago. And for us just entering the market right now, that's probably not the thing you're wanting to hear, right? If you've just been investing for the last six months, you can't really go back in time and be more conservative now than you were then. But you can look at the history and you can gauge your risk tolerance going in so that you don't go into the market and buy things when they're really expensive and then have them start to drop down. And that that's totally advice I agree with. I agree with him pretty much 100% on everything he said, that my portfolio, you can see that it's based more conservatively than most people's. I have 20% bonds, I have some real estate mixed in there, and then the holdings I do have are typically blue chip ones and ones that are pretty resilient in recessions. It's not no risk. There's still risk in there. I'm not uh, you know putting my money in cash and just leaving the market entirely, but... I'm in the market, I'm invested, I put money in there, but I'm definitely dialing it on the more conservative side. Because I see these patterns, I know that recessions are real, we're not immune to them, and this pattern, I think, is a big one to look at. But we'll move on to the the next one, and this is the one that gets most the attention, the yield curve. Now, the first time that I heard about the yield curve, it just sounded totally bizarre to me. And that was when I first really started getting into investing at all. Before it was talked about in the news, I just heard it browsing random YouTube videos and that type of thing. And I really wanted to learn about it because it seemed like a pretty solid indicator of it being a bad time to invest your money. Um, Now, when I looked into it, I'll give you some background 
on what the yield curve is. I know you've, you might have had it explained already, but I want to give you my explanation of it. And it has to do with borrowing and it has to do with lending out money. And I want to give an example to clarify some things. So let's back up from just a yield, yield curve here specifically. Let's just talk about lending money. With stocks, it's different than with debt. So debt is different than stocks in the way that risk is associated with them. If you own an equity, if you own a stock of a company, typically the longer that you own that equity, the less risk there's involved in it. Meaning if you own an equity and then it's you own it for 10 years, it's more likely to go up than if you own it for three months, right? Now with a with a bond, with debt, it's totally the opposite. And I'll give you the example. Let's say that you have a friend and he likes to ask for money to borrow, right? You have your friend and he asks to borrow $100 and he gets paid tomorrow. And he tells you, hey, I need to get groceries. I'm completely out. I have nothing to eat tonight. Uh, can I borrow $100 from you? I will pay you back tomorrow. I get paid tomorrow with my biweekly paycheck, right? Now compare that to this scenario. That same friend says, hey, I'm out of groceries. I need to borrow $100. Uh, I lost my job and I'm looking for one. I think I have some interviews, so I should be able to pay you back in about three months. Which one of those scenarios do you feel more confident that you're going to get your money back? The one where you're getting paid back tomorrow or the one that you're getting paid back in three months? That is how bonds work is the closer the due date is on them, the closer that you get the return on it, the less risk is involved. And there's other aspects to this as well. So when a bank looks at it, lending a money out longer term, there's more risk involved and therefore they want to charge a higher interest rate on it. So if you were in a business and this friend was asking to borrow money and you had those two scenarios of him getting paid tomorrow and you were going to get your money back tomorrow or him getting paid in three months and you're going to get your money back in three months. If you're a business, you would rate the one that you get back tomorrow as less risky. So you wouldn't need to charge them as much interest. And you wouldn't need to charge them a, the same interest rate as the person that's borrowing it for longer duration. And there's more to it than even that. The longer duration one, you have your money tied up with that person borrowing it for a longer period of time. And what that does is cut out potential opportunities. So you have opportunity cost associated with it. So there's two th negatives to having longer term loans. One is that uh, there's more risk involved. And the other is there's more potential opportunity cost. So if you're just lending your money out for a 24-hour period, it's very unlikely that you're going to have some big opportunity to lend your, out, your money for a higher interest rate to someone else or that you're going to have some great sale on something that you can only afford with that $100 because it's only 24 hours. But if you lend your money out for three months, yeah, you might come across things that you might go, man, I wish I had that money because a better opportunity came up. So this is the reason that longer date maturity on loans and on debt pay a higher interest rate, typically. Now, what happens is there is a curve to the yield, meaning there's these graphs, and I'll, sh I'll show one up here. So a normal yield curve is when the shorter term of the loan pays a lower interest rate. The longer the term of the loan, it gradually gets higher and higher interest rate, and that creates a curve. So if you have a 30-year one, and you're comparing that to a three-month one, it should curve up all the dates in between up nicely to the 30-year. Now, a, a yield curve inversion, when the, the yield curve inverts, that is when the shorter term maturity 
pays a higher interest rate than the longer term one. And there's a couple reasons that that happens. The yield curve inverts when investors are piling onto long-term loans and they don't want as much to do with the short-term loans. The reason that they want the long-term loans, the 10 or the 20 or the 30-year treasuries over the three month or the, the, the three years, the reason they want the longer ones is they are not confident in the economy and the returns that they can get in the short term. So they want to lock in longer t- term loans because they, they're locking in a return that they know they can get in the upcoming 10, 20, 30 years, which means they don't have confidence in the next five to six to seven years. That is when the yield curve, that's when it inverts. That's when it looks like this rather than like this. So having said that, it is investor sentiment. Investor sentiment is what causes the yield curve to invert. It means that investors are losing confidence in the economy. And what happened just recently is the yield curve between the three month and the 10 year just inverted. And that's a big one that uh, is a big indicator, I I guess, the the big indicator that economists look at that has happened before like the last seven different recessions. So let's take a look at this happening. This graph right here is from a, a government website that tracks a bunch of economic data. And this shows all the past yield curves in about the, I think the past seven different recessions. And it shows a distinct pattern. So let's break this down a little bit. If you're looking at this for the first time, it's probably pretty confusing, but I'll, sh- I'll just show you the quick notes on it. This gray highlighted, these, these vertical bars here that are highlighted gray, these are recessions. Those are periods of economic recession. Then this is the difference between the 10-year and the two-year maturity. So when this is above, that means it's like a healthy yield curve where the the two-year is less than the 10-year. And how high it is is how the difference between the two-year and the 10-year. Right up here, there's a pretty big difference between the two of them. Then you go down below this line here, and that means that it's inverted. So this horizontal line at zero, that is a point of when it inverts. And when it goes below here, that is a yield curve inversion where the short term is paying a higher interest rate than the long term. Now, if you look at this, there's a certain kind of pattern. So what typically happens is the yield curve inverts and then it uninverts and then a, a bit of time passes, about like 16 months, and then a recession starts. So we go on and look at this. This one inverted and it went down December 1988. And then 1990 is when a recession started. So you can see about two years later. Then it went way up. And again, it's after it's done inverting. Went way back up. We got through the recession. Then this goes down. Gets really close. Just peaks right through right there. Then it goes down and it dives through right here. And again, it breaks through at about February 2000. It uninverts the end of December 2000. And then look, we start a recession in 2000, 2001 on the upswing of the yield curve. Again, we go down here. We're getting closer to where we are now. And in like 2006, we see the yield curve invert, goes back up, uninverts. And on the upswing, what do we have? A recession. So you see this pattern play out over and over again. Now it comes down and the the yield is healthy all the way through here. Things are looking good. Stocks are just going up. But now look at this. We see this thing getting closer and closer to the inversion line. And if we zoom in, I mean, it's, it's really close. Let's take a look at it here. So 
you can tell us we're right there. And this is the two and 10 year, which uh, hasn't technically inverted the, the three, I believe the three month one and the 10 year has. And there's, again, there's like some debate on this because it only inverted for a very short time, which a full like yield curve inversion is supposed to be a couple months, like three months that it inverted for before it upswings again. But I mean, it seems like we're right there. The yield curve is showing the same type of behavior it did that preceded many other recessions. And so this is definitely an indicator to look at of a recession. Investors are losing confidence. They're locking in long-term gains and they're saying, I'm not confident in the economy for the short term. So I'd rather pick a lower interest rate, a lower interest rate on something with a shorter maturity. I want a lower interest rate on something that's more long-term. I can lock in my money for a longer amount of times because I don't know what's going to happen in the short term. And that's really what's happening right now. So that is the second indicator of a recession. So, so far we have the pattern of bull markets and the average time during it. And then we have the yield curve inverting. So we have two pretty big indicators of an upcoming recession. Now let's go on to the third thing that I want to look at, which is the unemployment rate. Let me go over to this Bloomberg article right here. Okay, so here's a Bloomberg article. Unemployment hits a low, then comes a recession. The U.S. labor market might still have some slack in it. Let's hope so. Pretty much what this is saying is, you can find lots of articles on this. This isn't the only one, but they're highlighting this trend of what happens is unemployment typically hits some kind of ultimate low and then a recession follows sometime close afterwards, right? And what it says that whatever one might think about the U.S., political situation, it's hard to deny the economy is doing just fine. In April, the unemployment rate dropped to 3.9%, a 17-year low. At this point, there's a job opening for every unemployed person in the country. Not bad. And it says the spirit of seeing the glass half empty, though, it's worth asking whether this state of affairs uh, portends something more ominous for economists. And then it goes on to say, that the unemployment rate has always been a lagging indicator. It's like looking at the rearview mirror. It tells us where the economy was in the not so distant past. So what they're saying is that the unemployment rate is a reflection of how the economy was in the past, not how it currently is. And it says the unemployment rate is arguably a leading indicator, if rather perverse one, if you look at the relationship between the unemployment rate and the 10 most recent recessions in the U.S., it's striking how quickly recessions follow in the wake of the economy hitting full employment. So let's take a look at another graph here. This is another government graph. And what this one is, is the civilian unemployment rate compared to recessions. So again, the shaded areas on this graph is another recession, right? And this line is the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate, when it's high, 8%, that's really bad, right? And we had, we had times where it was really high, up to 10%. But you notice the same trend here. The unemployment rate goes down way low. Then it starts to come back up a little bit, recession. Then it goes way back down, way low, goes back up a little bit. We hit a recession over and over and over again. Every single time that we have a recession, we have the unemployment rate drop to these uh, incredibly low points. In relativity, they drop to a pretty low point before there's a recession. Now, again, patterns. Let's look at the the patterns. If you're studying anything, you look at fact patterns, right? You look at history to to try to predict future. Now, if you look at the pattern, where are we now? Look at this. We go down all the way down to 3.7% right there. That is a very low unemployment rate. 
that is where the amount of people not working I mean, it's, it's hard to not find a job if you're really actively looking. There's tons of them. So you have to be really picky right now to not find any kind of job. And what's happening is it's starting to go back up a little bit. And what do we have every time that happens? So these are all indicators. And I'm not trying to be, I know this is, I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer or, or a fortune teller and say that there's a recession and the end is nigh and all of that. Uh, there's things that are different now too. So not always does the past guarantee the future. Things can be different. First of all, we're much more aware of these different kind of indicators. And the fact that we know about them now, when they used to just, we're, we're kind of gathering all of this data. The fact that we know about them now, I do believe puts into people a lot more caution. And that has been shown in more than just what we're thinking. So we can look at other sides of the coin here. First of all, the 2009 recession, we're not nearly as leveraged as we were then. If you look at banks and, and different industries and the amount of debt, we're not nearly as leveraged. Uh, people themselves aren't nearly as leveraged as they were in 2009. So what started the last recession was people were incredibly leveraged. We were selling homes to people that couldn't, they couldn't, they were on a variable rate mortgages. They couldn't pay the debt. A lot of them were taking out second mortgages and investing that money. Um, there's an incredible amount of optimism and I see a lot more cynicism and caution now than I think that we had in 2009. I was relatively young in 2009. I have vague memories of it, but everything that I've studied about it was that people were a lot more go happy optimistic than they are now. I think that the people that are investing now, the, the kind of millennial generation that I fit into, they went through that. And so I think there's a lot of hesitancy to jump back into these really highly leveraged strategies where people are taking on tons of risk. And so I think that that's one thing to take into mind is that right now the economy does not look nearly like it did in 2009. So we have both sides of the coin. While I don't think that our situation right now is anywhere close to what it was in 2000 preceding 2009, I also can't say that I don't think that there's any risk of a recession anytime soon. When I look at all of these different these different indicators, I mean, they're showing a pattern and it's just a matter of time till we have a recession. It's not going to be, there's nothing, I know uh, Trump likes the stock market. There's nothing he can do to stop it. There's nothing Obama, there's nothing, there's nothing people can do to stop a recession. It's a normal economic cycle is we have periods of expansion. We get a little ahead of ourselves and we have periods of contraction and we have to recess back in. We have to budget. We have to do that type of thing. It's the same type of thing if you have a credit card and you overspend. You go, ooh, I racked up a pretty big debt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off these this week. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off and be a little bit more cautious. And I think we do that as an economy. It sometimes is a lot worse than others. What I would hope for, to be optimistic about this, is that we do have some kind of pullback. But it's more of a healthy pullback than 2009. Uh, 2009 was not a good recession. And I know anytime people lose jobs, it's a bad thing, but I mean, it wasn't even, it wasn't even ballpark a healthy recession. What happened was awful. It caused a global financial crisis where the government was stepping in, bailing out, bailing out companies for hundreds of billions of dollars and, and entire industries. And it would have uh, caused a domino effect. It would have been a lot worse. And so what I'm hoping is if we do have some kind of pullback, that it's more of a uh, moderate pullback where we have a little bit of a little bit of a, a contraction in the economy. We stabilize prices, we get back on trap on track, and then we move forward from there. So that's the optimistic uh, 
hopeful thing for it. But we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how bad the next recession will be. We don't know how much stocks are going to fall or what industries are going to be hit the worst. You don't know if you're going to keep your job in it, right? There's a lot of things that we don't know. And like anything with investing, it's all based around risk. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know the situation that we're in right now, the risks that we face right now, and we can prepare for that. And luckily, in all of these indicators, we do have some time. If you look at these different graphs, when they start swinging back up, we typically have like a year, year and a half period on average. So we might even have more time than that, right? This might go on for another few years. And that's enough time to get your affairs in order in most situations. So you need to look at your situation see what industry in, see what kind of savings you have and see your expenses. And what I would do is have the attitude of making hay while the sun shines because you can't do it in the winter. When you enter a recession, it's too late to say, oh, now I should start saving. Now I should start preparing. When we're in good times like we are right now, it's important to start building up your savings if you haven't already. Just start putting it to, putting away a little bit of money every month and not spending it on anything. Not until we start having negative unemployment rates and and not until you lose your job that type of thing start putting away money build your portfolio to withstand the type of economic troubles and the type of things that might happen in the future have your portfolio built in that mind what you're going to do in that type of thing if you're in a seasonal type of job where you know it's like summer sales or that type of thing where work comes and goes and it's heavily based off of, of consumer habits, make sure that you're st- storing more money than people that have like a really recession-resistant job. If you're in a situation where the husband works in the government and the wife works in, in healthcare, I mean, you have two sources of income and you're both in really stable positions, even if there's economic downturn, you don't need to have 12 months of savings and you know you don't need to have that type of extreme extreme actions if you're in a situation where you have multiple incomes in different industries that are both recession proof if you are in industries like that are based off of economic the uh if you're in service industry if you're in construction things where there's uh where there's lack of funding if you're in different startups those are companies where you want to uh save up more those are type of industries where you want to do be more cautious. My dad worked as a cop for 33 years. So he worked as a government job. He never when a, when the 2009 recession happened, he didn't care. The only the only, he actually saw it as a positive thing strictly speaking financially for him because he owned uh I believe seven apartments at the time and it drastically lowered his tax implications on all of them because all of all of them went down in value about 50%. So he saved a ton on taxes on his home and all of his rentals by arguing the the value of his apartments down. So the city taxed him less and they kept full occupancy. He rented them out the entire time. And then he worked for the government, which is, a, you know, as a police job, he was on the more of the administration side of it. But he wasn't about to get fired. The the county people pay their taxes, even recession. They can't go without a county jail. If you're in that type of industry, you don't really need a fair recession as much as somebody that's in one, the majority of people that are just in your average job working for some private company where they can lay people off. Look at your own situation. Things are good right now. You have time to make changes in the future. If we started heading into a recession, if you got fired, just think about that now. So that how would you handle it? If it's good and you're already prepared for that, then that's great. If it's not, 
you have time, but you have to start now, start making some adjustments and just putting away a little bit of money to make it so that if that does happen, you're not freaking out over it. Because there's actions you can take now to make it so that you don't have to have all those anxieties and fears of when we enter one. The best situation you could be in is slowly building up a conservative portfolio, slowly building up a savings. And so that if we do hit a kind of a recession, you have tons of financial tools to deal with it until to ride it out until the economy recovers because it does it usually does recover pretty quick within a couple years right usually mostly within a year sometimes within two years if you look at these graphs that's my two cents on it and that's really what i'm doing so i'm building up my portfolio obviously i have a big portion of it in bonds in in utilities and things that are very conservative i have it as conservative as i think while i still want to get some gains i still want to have it working for me I don't want to go max into just the most aggressive equities with the lion's share of my free capital right now. That's what I'm doing is I'm building up personal savings. I'm preparing for one, but I'm still going into the the stock market. I'm still building up a portfolio, but I'm just doing it a little bit more conservative. So that's my take on it. you guys, I want to hear what you guys think on it as well. So if you have different opinions on it or you don't see these indicators as uh, as good ones or if I've left out any competing evidence, if there's things that, are, that show that this totally isn't a recession for X, Y, Z, that we're not heading into one, that we're not close to one, let me know that as well. So I'd be interested to know what you guys think on this topic because it's an interesting one. It usually affects about everybody and I don't want to know what you think about it. I wanted to touch on one other thing for this, uh, this episode before ending and that is Boeing. Now you've heard me in the past talk about the Spotify versus Apple battle and how disappointed I was in Spotify, in Spotify for them trying to use the regulatory power of their government to give them, a, I think, a a pretty ridiculous edge in the things that they're wanting Apple to do for them. Now, I expressed disappointment in Spotify. Now it's time to turn to an American company, and I cannot even express to you how disappointed I am in Boeing. I think from reading this article, and just it doesn't even reveal anything real secret. It just explains what happened. And it's, it's somewhat what I assumed, but I can't even express how disappointed I am. Let's go through some of this. So Boeing had two airplanes crash close together in close proximity in close proximity of each other in time but they also crashed in a similar fashion soon after takeoff and there's a lot of similarities which i thought immediately after that happened that the flight administration should ground all these planes now if we look at it we got more information on what exactly happened to cause these crashes and like i thought before it did have to do with boeing i didn't want to I didn't want to go and bash Boeing right away. My criticism of them early on was that they didn't down their planes and investigate. They still were trying to keep them in the air when two of them had crashed. That was my criticism, is that it was unbelievable to me that they wanted to keep their planes in the air after two of their newest models crashed within six months of each other, killing over 300 people. Now, my criticism has moved to a different subject and one that is much more worse of them. The... The way that they've dealt with this, I think, has been horrible. So let's look at exactly what happened. Boeing is competing with Airbus, and to do that, they've created this new engine that is uh, a more 
fuel efficient, cost efficient engine. The only issue with it is it's quite a bit bigger. If you look off the left here, this is the new engine and you can see it's much larger than this other one. And it's moved up more close forward on the plane. It sits a little bit differently on it. And this is the difference between the 737 Max and the 737-800, so the older version of their plane. Now, I don't know all the aerodynamics involved with this, but what they highlight here is that with this new engine, one of the side effects of it being bigger is that in some instances, the nose of the plane will go up. It, it just, the aerodynamics work out that way, and that's a side effect. The nose of the plane will go up. Now, when the nose of the plane goes up and the pilot's not aware of it and you just travel like that, you start to lose thrust. When you start to lose thrust, uh, you can risk having a stall. And a stall is a very bad thing. If your plane becomes stalled in a commercial airliner, it's going to crash. Because when you're stalled, you have no thrust to be able to roll the plane left and right. You don't have any ability to do that. The back fins don't work to make it so that you can tilt the plane up or down. Uh, you just lose all power. You pretty much just go hurling to the ground after that. So you want to avoid a stall pretty much at all cost. Now, Boeing knew about this. They knew about this side effect. And so they developed a software and a hardware system to deal with this. And that's what they called the MCAS, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. That's what it stands for. So this MCAS was, it's a piece of hardware and a piece of software. The hardware of it is the angle of attack sensor. And that is this thing right here. And all that is, is it's like a weather vane dial. It just looks at which way the wind blows and it says, oh, the plane is angled this way, right? We're either angled where we're looking up or we're looking down. And... That's all it does. And there's one of it on each side of the nose of the plane. And when those read the angle as the plane traveling upwards, it triggers something in the back of the plane. It triggers these horizontal stabilizers, these fins in the back, those point up to make it so that the nose of the plane comes back down. So that's the basic function of it is you get in a stall risk. Okay. Boeing knows about it. Their software knows about it. And they trigger the fins to put you back in a horizontal position so that you're not a stall risk anymore. Problem was this thing didn't work as executed as it was designed. It had issues with it. We don't know exactly the issues of it, if they were software or hardware related. But I think they think it's more of a software issue because what was happening is when the plane was flying completely horizontal, it was giving a false positive and it was putting these horizontal stabilizers to work, putting the nose of the plane down in a dip and... That would make, of course, the pilots freak out that they're nose diving now because this automatic system is going off and they don't even know what's going on. So they freak out and they try to do everything they can to make it go horizontal again. And they succeeded at that. And then it false triggered again. And then they succeeded in making it go horizontal. So they fought this feature over and over again. And I read it in another article. I can't remember how many times it was, but it listed off like over... This happened over 20 times in one flight where before they finally crashed and died, where this system just kept going on and the pilots kept trying to pull back. And I mean, they only had like 40, 50 seconds to deal with this before they ended up dying. And unless they knew how to disable the system altogether right from the start, which is what they should have done, they had no, I mean, there's nothing else they're going to do. The plane pretty much killed them if they didn't disable the system. Now, Boeing's defense is that there are ways to disable this, and they I don't know if it was proper training or not. I think the reason that this didn't happen in the U.S., I was listening to some other, uh, some other news reports and things where there's different U.S. airliners, uh, uh, airline pilots talking about it, 
And they pretty much said that it's no diss on these smaller foreign airliners, but a lot of them don't have as much experience with these type of planes. So most to get into where you're flying commercial airliners for the U.S. airlines, I mean, they mostly have decades and decades of experience. So most of the time they would be able to disable the system if this happened because they are just more familiar with the plane. Now, these that's not that's not a uh, an excuse on Boeing. They shouldn't be giving planes to this without the proper training of the people flying it to be able to know how to disable these type of features. And this isn't even the worst part. Now, I think in and of itself, this is pretty abysmal that they'd have a system like this and and have the possibility of having this software not recognize that it's going over and over and over again and that it doesn't have any way that's obvious for the pilot to override it. I think that's abysmal design to begin with. But it gets worse. Let me scroll down to this part. This is where I got to the article. I was honestly just baffled and it made me... Uh, just, I can't even express how disappointed. Let me find where it is. All right, here it is. So it, it talks in this paragraph here about how, I mean, Boeing, obviously they already have a lot of bad press. Their stock has fallen a lot. And the, I think that the leaders in the U S are pretty upset about this because it's, it's embarrassing, honestly. So I think the FAA, I thought it was embarrassing to begin with that they didn't just ground the planes after this happened, even though you don't have something definitively that says it's the plane fact patterns. I mean, we're looking at it here with the history of the yield curve and all this stuff is something with, if you release a plane and it's the same version and it, it crashed the same style where it was right after takeoff and it's this within a six month period ground the plane and figure out what's happening before before you continue flying it so i thought that was ridiculous to begin with but then here comes a part that blew me away more than anything this line right here boeing has said it would overhaul the flight control system and make safety alerts that had been optional a standard feature now i looked into this and it led me to a different article the reason that it was optional and that these smaller airliners that these smaller airlines didn't have it is because it was a paid feature. A paid feature. Like you're you know, it's like you buy a little game on an Xbox store and then you get a little upgrade for your your character inside the game. It's like you're buying Fortnite skins. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is an airliner and they're they're charging extra for safety features. The New York Times article says doomed Boeing jets uh, lacked two safety features that companies sold only as extras. And that's a real thing. They were charging extra money for additional safety features. Now, in Boeing's defense, the FAA and all the regulatory bodies said these planes were good to go without these additional safety features. So in Boeing's way, they were saying, well, the plane was already supposed to be super safe. These were just extra features that cost some money that they could buy in addition to it. My feeling is that that's completely ridiculous. And if there is a safety feature on a plane that can be on a plane, it should come standard with the plane. You shouldn't have to pay extra to get these extra safety features. And and pretty much the safety feature from my take on reading what it actually did, I think it could have prevented these crashes. So the safety feature, it was an alert system that told them if this thing was activated. And if the pilots knew that this thing was activated and it was automatically doing this, they probably could have disabled it. So from reading that, it's very frustrating to read. Um, I know that the, the goal of any company is to create shareholder value, right? And that is the number one goal of, goal of Bo- Boeing. It's not to make their passengers safe. That's a secondary goal. The 
first goal is to create shareholder value. Now you might say, well, that's not right. They got to make people safe. But listen to this, the logic of this. You don't create shareholder value by killing off passengers of your plane. The fact that they lost 300 people in this, it totally destroys their reputation. It, I mean, you look at their stock. This is not how you create shareholder value right here, losing 16% in one month. The, the things fall in line. If their goal is to create shareholder value, they should make it so their planes never crash. So that they have their, they have a really good reputation up until now, right? They have a, uh, I've looked at their past and it's, I think they have less deaths than Airbus does. So they've had a pretty impeccable reputation up until now. And you don't create a good brand and a good shareholder value by letting your planes crash. This has obviously been extraordinarily costly in just the amount of time that they've wasted with their planes on the ground, the amount of money it's going to cost for the additional training, the amount of uh, branding and reputation damage done in it, all the regulatory problems. I mean, the fact that they charge extra for another safety feature is so unbelievably dumb in my mind for both financial reasons, uh, just plain common sense reasons, and for safety reasons. I think it's a stupid it's stupid business on every term. I can't express how how disappointing this is in the company. I hope that they never charge for a safety feature like this again. So anyway, I I wanted to give a follow-up on this because I, I started off with this topic uh, a couple episodes again, and I'm just going to keep following them as we get more news. So if we hear about the Spotify Apple thing, I'll keep following that. If we hear about more about this, I'll keep following it. Um, I don't know if you guys find it interesting or not, but I, I thought that this is interesting at least. As far as my stock, I mean, what do I do now? I still hold it. I'll hold it till they cut the dividend. I have a little bit of Boeing. I think it's my largest industrial. You can see it's it's pretty astonishing to me when a company, let me adjust the view here. When a company can kill through, I mean, they can kill it, not intentionally, but they kill 300 plus people through mistakes of their own and bad engineering and bad decision-making, and their stock only falls 16% when just a year ago, I mean, they're still up from, they're still up from a year ago. That shows some extreme resilience. When a company can do something that drastically bad and only fall this much, I, I like, what can Boeing do to bring their stock down? They would have to just continually having planes crash. If they keep having planes crash, their stock will keep going down. But it just shows you the resilience of this company. That part about it is pretty astonishing because, it, I mean, in most companies where if they do anything wrong, you, I mean, look at Jack in the Box or Chipotle when they had they poison people, a handful of people. When they keep having those problems, their stocks dropped a lot more than 15%. So Boeing, that shows you what investors think of this company. They don't think that there's a whole lot of risk with it, even when they make huge mistakes like this. So uh, anyway, I wanted to follow up on that, but I'll have another like more standard portfolio update at the end of the week. I just wanted to give you uh, my take on these two different topics. And I hope that this video wasn't too negative. I don't want you guys to be scared. I'm not a, a doomsdayer. I'm not like um, Peter Schiff that's out there always saying the end is near. Uh, I don't believe that. I think that there's... I think that there's some indicators we can look at and some things we can do to prepare now for more rocky times in the economy, but I don't want to come off as too negative. So I hope that this video didn't come off that way. Anyway, I hope you guys have a good week. I will uh, see you next time.